Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, good evening. Um, I guess my introduction's already done, so we can just move on. No, um... I have a picture here of my family, the five of us. My husband, Jason, is here with us. Um, we have a place in Charlottesville. Um, if you know Erin Herman, Erin Herman, shout out. She's watching our kids right now, so we can be here. Um, but I'm going to start off with a giveaway. Do you guys like free stuff? Okay. What year did Chi Alpha at UVA begin? 2002. I heard 2001. Over here, yes. I want to give, yep, 2001. So it, it, is, it is a little hairy because they came on grounds in 2000, started, but really the first class was started in 2001. So I came in 2002. Um, next question. This is with Live Dead, the organization we work with. Um, who can tell me what the mission is of Live Dead? Yeah, yeah. I saw your hand. Uh-huh. And there's one more component. Through? Yes! My girl! So Liv, that's, that's, her mind is sharp. She must have like a test tomorrow or something. She's sharp. <laughs> Live Dead is, the goal of Live Dead, the mission is to plant churches in unreached people groups through teams. And that's the organization we're with. So I got two books there. And if I forget to tell you, we have a table outside after this where we have lots of information. We have these two books, Live Dead books, for sale for $5. Um, That's our cost. And then we also have a lot of free resources. So feel free to come by, chat it up. And we also have some things that you can look at. Um, So yes, Chi Alpha is really deep in our DNA. One thing Pete didn't say was that I was saved um, in Chi Alpha and... uh, World Missions was also really close into my DNA. I was formed through Chi Alpha, made my had community in Chi Alpha. I was in the salt shack. That's where I really started living out my faith with other Christian believers. And we just knew that missions was a part of our DNA. But I thought my role was to pray, to send, and even to welcome when they come back home on furlough like we are right now. I would welcome them into our home. We, my husband and I had prayed about being on the mission field but we weren't really, we thought that was our role, was just to pray and to send and to welcome. When, just a few years ago, we started feeling God was sensing that we were going to have a transition. It was really because our youngest, Leo, was heading into preschool, so I was going to have some more time on my hands, and I didn't know if I was going to go back into Chi Alpha, if I was going to go back to school. I wasn't sure. So, wait a minute, go back. Nope. Um, Ruining my thunder here. No, it's okay. So my youngest was heading to preschool, and he, um, I didn't know what I was going to do at the time. So we started praying. And long story short, we really felt like God's urging us to start thinking about going overseas ourselves. We were pretty established. We felt like God was using us. We had a really a good thing going. Um, we felt like we were in the inner city schools here in Charlottesville, and God was really starting to make some doors, even with internationals and the refugees here. Um, but God was just knocking on our hearts. We were not settled. I don't know if you've ever been in a place of disobedience or feeling like you are not, you, you, God is telling you to do something. You're like, wait, I need more information. Um, we could not sit still on what God was prompting in our heart. And we ended up moving overseas in 2019 to East Africa. Um, we've been there for two and a half years and we just came back in December. We transitioned to be fully appointed with our organization. So that means that we can have, um, have an opportunity to share in forums like this. We go to churches and Chi Alphas to share about what we do. We're fundraising and hoping to be back in East Africa by the end of the year. Um, we felt called, when we felt called to go, we knew that Live Dead and going to an unreached people group, a UPG, was where we wanted to be. Thank you for the worship team, for the worship this, morning, or this evening. We, I felt the presence of the Lord, and I think it reminded me that one thing I heard early on in Chi Alpha was the reason we do missions is because there's the worship, where, because worship isn't, that's why we have missions. Because worship isn't happening in every nation and every tongue and every tribe, that's why we have missions. 
That's why people are called to go cross-culturally. So our vision, Jason and I and our, our family's vision and our team's vision is to plant the church in this unreached people group in East Africa through a team. So now to the picture. This is me as a toddler. This is in my mom's dresser, but I'm from a town, rural Virginia, Waynesboro, rural town. Even though it's only 30 minutes away, it's a world away. Anybody else from Waynesboro? All right, we talk afterwards. Um, I, tell me if you relate, okay, especially afterwards. I, I knew two things growing up in rural Virginia. I cheered for something called a hokey, and I, and I despised something called a cavalier. Now, wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. People from rural Virginia, do you know that this is true? Okay, so here, here's what happened. I don't know. I did not know what I was saying, okay? Forgive me. I was learning, but if you were in a culture where that is the norm, and if you mix up the acronyms like Virginia and Virginia Tech, man, you are quick to fall in line because they will correct you. It is not Virginia. It is Virginia Tech, okay? In high school, though, I began questioning so many things, which led me on to, in this journey, some, but I also questioned my faith, and I became agnostic. But I started questioning, and this illustration, a little more innocuous, was why do I cheer for a Hokie? Why do I cheer for Virginia Tech? Does it really matter? Why, why is this a big deal? So I didn't know what I was going to major in, and so I didn't know if it would be science or business. Those were kind of two things I was interested in. And I was looking at state schools. Virginia and Virginia Tech both have good programs in both. So as I toured and I stepped on the foot of Virginia, UVA's campus for Days on the Lawn, I just felt a peace. I didn't know God, but I had a peace. And I felt like this was an opportunity for me to become somebody. I knew I wanted to become somebody and have an opportunity, and I didn't know which area of expertise, but I knew that I was going to stand up against the status quo of rural Virginia, and I was going to become a cavalier. Can I get an amen? So the reaction of my community, however, was not cheering. I became uh, ridiculed and jeered. And the most hurtful thing I think I heard was, oh, we're not really that, we're not surprised that you became a cavalier. And that wasn't in a positive way. So, when someone stands up against the status quo, it might make you pause. For me in rural Virginia, when I decided I was going to break the status quo and go to the UVA, I was ridiculed and persecuted by my peers and my community. Even my brother and sister, my t-shirt says, somebody at Virginia Tech loves me. It's because my brother and sister, they were alumni. For me, I went and broke, the reason that I did this was because I had a value that was deeper than the status quo. My value was that I had saw an opportunity for personal growth. I didn't know God at the time. I, I was doing it for myself. But if somebody else stands up in the midst of persecution, stands up against the status quo, it makes you think, what do they value? Something deeper than the status quo. Today, we're going to look in the book of Acts, chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to have some slides with some of the verses. But we're going to be journeying through Paul's first missionary journey. Starts in chapter 13, and it continues on into 14. We're not going to read all of that tonight but I am going to introduce it and give you some overview and some points. Let's look at Acts 13. And actually, we're going to start a verse before for the first three verses in chapter 13. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, which was when they went to the church in Jerusalem, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, 
they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the introduction to Paul's first missionary journey. I encourage you to read all of chapter 13 and 14 just to get a big overview of what he does. I have a map here that's going to talk about, show his, where he came from. To give you a little bit of background, Antioch is a big Roman city where there was a lot of a new church that was happening there. And Paul and Barnabas are sent out from this church. This is like their sending church, their home church, where they're being launched into ministry. They went from there to the island of Cyprus, which was just due west. And it was a a very common place. If you were going to travel anywhere, you would stop over in Cyprus. Then they went north into Asia Minor, and they visited different cities there. And all along the way, they're preaching the gospel, there's miracles, and people are coming to faith. Um, One big observation, if you read chapters 13 and 14, is that they're faced with a lot of persecution, a lot of ridicule. In Pisidian Antioch, the one main city they go to in Asia Minor, the Jews, it says the Jews were jealous and openly opposed them and abused them, persecuted them and drove them out. In Iconium, the Jews who refused to believe, it says that there was a plot to mistreat and even stone them, which that means kill them. In Lystra, actually let's look there, Acts 14, 19 and 20. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, those two places I just mentioned, that's where those Jews followed them to Lystra, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. I wish there was a little bit more detail here, don't you? <laughs> um, But wow, you can see there's such persecution. These Jewish people from these towns are so angry and upset at Paul and Barnabas. They followed him to Lystra, thought they killed him, and somehow he got up and they went on to ministry the next day. Something big is happening here. I want to know, when I read the Bible a lot of times, I want to know what's going on. The, the background story. You don't need to know a lot of things to know about Jesus and the gospel. But when you're reading Acts, it's really helpful to know some things. I looked into some about this persecution. What is going on? What is going on? What is causing such deep hurt or, or anger? And uh, the crowds are so upset, they're following them. We're going to look at it today. We're going to go back to chapter 13. We're going to go back to Pisidian Antioch, Okay. Let's go to chapter 13, verse 13. They're leaving Cyprus. From Paphos, and Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, which is the big city. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And so standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. That's just the opening. So let's pause here. The city in Antioch is a big, bigger city in Asia Minor. Okay, and They know that it's on the border between some rural areas as well. So that border from the rural areas, this Pisidian Antioch is a city that is kind of influencing this region. There's a synagogue. We see that they're going to a synagogue. This is a Gentile area, a non-Jewish area. Roman and Greek people are living here. But there's enough Jewish people that there is a synagogue. Okay, so that tells us something. There's a Jewish crowd. That's their audience. And also... There's Gentiles who worship God. Paul addresses them. Gentiles who worship God. So that means that not just were there Jewish people in the synagogue, but there were converts, Gentile converts, people who were not Jewish, but had decided for some reason to follow God. So in their day, what that meant was that they would take oaths, they would be circumcised, and they would follow all the law to be a part of the Jewish community. So if you wanted to follow God in that day, 
that's what you would do. You would have to take this huge commitment that all your family, you would have to follow all the laws and you, in order to worship God with these, um, the Jewish people. So now these Gentiles who worship God and these Jewish people are coming together in the synagogue. Do you know that the Jewish people would be at a little bit higher status than these Gentile converts? And the Gentile converts wouldn't just be second class, they would be third or fourth or fifth. So the leaders of the Jewish synagogue, those would be the top, the rulers, the Pharisees. Then you would have Jewish pure-blooded people. Your parents are Jewish, your grandparents are Jewish, and so on. Then you would have the mixed Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish blood, and then you would have these Gentile converts, okay? Very hierarchical in the synagogue, in the Jewish community. And we see here that Paul and Barnabas, they go immediately to the synagogue. That's their method of sharing the gospel. They go to the people they know. They're building bridges here. They go to people they know, and they're gonna share. And we see that as guests in a synagogue, it was obviously very, it was very important for guests to be recognized, just like if you ever go to different clubs or organizations, even here, sometimes they have the guests wave and welcome them. It's the same thing in the synagogue. If you were a guest, you would stand up, you would want to welcome and greet, but knowing, they probably knew that Paul, they had been chit-chatting with him and knowing that Paul's a big deal. Paul is a was a Pharisee. He was a student of the head rabbi in the, at that time. So they would want him not just to greet, but they would want him to preach, okay? So here we are at Paul's word, okay? So you, now you know the scene. Jewish, Jewish converts, very hierarchical, and he's invited to give a word. So he takes the opportunity to share the gospel. Let's look. Verse 17, we're going to continue with Paul speaking. He said, listen to me, remember? The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors, the Jewish people. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. So to pause there again, Paul is taking and connecting to his audience, and he's saying, God came to us. We are his people, and he's going to share the opportunity that God, what God has done. Let's look, skip down to verse 23. He says, he's connecting Egypt to, to King David, and he's gonna say about David's descendants. From this man's, or David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Okay, so he's connecting David and the lineage of David to Jesus. This is his audience. They're children of David. He's saying, Jesus has come and God has promised him. In verse 26, I'm gonna skip down some more. He says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, there it is again, that mixed audience. It is to us that the message of salvation has come. It has been sent to us. This message of salvation of Jesus has come to us the people in the synagogue at that time. So what is this message of salvation? Like Paul gets even more specific, okay? He's saying in verses, I'm gonna skip down to verse 32. He says, we tell you the good news, which means gospel, good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children, by raising up Jesus. And then he continues on. I'm going to skip down to verse 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay, so now he's talking about forgiveness of sins. We might connect to this to the good news we know. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Thank God that there's freedom from sin, not just forgiveness, right? A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses, okay? And then he goes on and even admonishes them. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm gonna do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So I'm getting a lot of things from Paul's pretty, his, his explicit message, right? He is being very frank. If I was in a group of Jewish people I don't know if I would be quite as direct as Paul would. I wouldn't have the guts to do that. Paul, 
here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is being super direct. Jesus is the fulfillment. God has promised the Savior for, to the people of Israel, and we are the message bearers to share this message. There is freedom from sin, forgiveness from sin, justification that's bigger than the law, that law that you guys all follow, and some of you have even been circumcised and follow. Actually, there's, there's, Jesus is better than that. Pretty, pretty demanding words. Ooh, so sorry. <clears throat> okay, so the reaction of the crowd here. I, I'm kind of squirming in my seat now that you know a little bit more of this, the story that Paul is, po- is posing about this gospel. What are they going to do? Look at verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Hmm. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to to continue in the grace of God. That was unexpected. Um, I thought that was when the persecution was going to start. But we don't see any hint of this. Luke, the author here, has no hint of any persecution or them being upset. Paul has preached a very explicit message of Jesus being the fulfillment of the promise of God bringing a Savior. And they're, they're like, come on, come back next week. We want to hear more. Let's look at the next Sabbath, what happens. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. So, what happened? There's quite a shift here of the audience. So, first thing to note is that it says the whole city. Remember where they are, Pisidian Antioch. This is a Jewish, or this is a Gentile area. Roman, Greek, non-Jewish people. So what do you think Paul and Barnabas were doing from the first time they preached to the second time? You think they were just sitting at home praying? Oh Lord, I hope our next message is really good. No, they were probably, from other things we see, they were out in the community. They were going to the watering holes. They were going to the Starbucks. They were going to the lounges. They were, go- they were out in the marketplace talking to non-Jewish people. They were inviting people into hearing about God, hearing about this, this story, inviting them to hear more. Come on Sunday or Saturday, the, the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. So they went out and shared beyond then the synagogue. They went beyond the Jewish people. They went beyond the Jewish converts, the people who knew God. And they were inviting people into a relationship with God. So this is what we have to realize When the Jewish people came to their synagogue, their church on Saturday, and they're ready to worship and hear the word of the Lord, it's when those crowds, those Gentile people were in their holy place, that's what made them angry. That's what made them upset. So let me pause here. The gospel of Jesus Christ has already been preached. The death burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the promise. Paul articulates the beauty of the gospel being part of the Jewish history and the story and the plan for God to continue to fulfill it through Jesus Christ. The Jewish people said yes and amen when they heard that. But then when that gospel caused a change in their synagogue, a change in the status quo, Then they got angry. It wasn't the facts of the gospel, but it was when the gospel showed up in their synagogue and changed the status quo. That's when they started to persecute. The gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Hear me on this. Maybe you're new here and you're like, I don't get all this Jewish stuff. It's totally fine. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Jewish people, the Old Testament, the New Testament, is the same story. 
God is a God who brings outsiders in. He brings the people you don't want, he brings them in and says, they're my people. You can worship me. The dividing wall of hostility that Paul writes about later, this is it. He's saying you can all come in. Doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. Doesn't matter if you're a hokey or a who. It doesn't matter. The Jewish people who persecuted Paul, they valued the status quo more than Jesus. We can see that. It wasn't the facts of Jesus. They probably even agreed that the facts were real, but they were not willing to give up their status and position. They didn't want their holy place to change. It makes me think of when Jesus says, he has a lot of harsh words for those poor Pharisees. And he says to them in Luke 20, he says, he warns his disciples, he says, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue up front and places of honor at the banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Those men will be punished most severely. Jesus is warning us here. Don't be so focused on the status quo or your position or your your place in society that you miss the gospel. So I want to pause here about this gospel. Maybe there's people, this is the first time you've heard this. I hope it is. I heard it for the first time about 20 years ago. God wants, if you feel like you don't belong, if you're an outsider here, you don't get all this, God sees you. He brings you in. He welcomes you in. If you feel like you, people aren't welcoming you, that might just be our human nature. But God is welcoming you in. And I know there are people that are welcoming you here as well. For us that are following Jesus, is our gospel about welcoming outsiders in? Do I have a blind spot where I'm missing this? Who are the outsiders that I don't like to come in? When I'm supposed to be inviting people to MNL or to core group, who are the people I kind of skip over? Or when I go home, I can share about Jesus and invite people, but when I go home, man, there's somebody at home I don't like to invite. They're not. They, they, they're, God, they're not ready for God. Maybe it's somebody with an extreme political affiliation. They're outside. I don't want them in. It'd be too messy. Where in my contacts, maybe it's a woman that wears a hijab. Maybe it's a man who is obviously has a mark on his forehead because he bows so much and prays at the mosque. Maybe he's too outside. Those are lies. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a God who welcomes outsiders in. So here we are back in Acts the message of the gospel has to affect the status quo. It has to affect our holy place, the synagogue. Paul and Barnabas just shared the message of the gospel, and then they probably saw the crowds creeping in. And the synagogue was so packed, there was probably people leaning in the windows. And they also probably saw that the Jewish leaders are not too happy. You know, they're probably sitting up in those prominent seats up front, and they're like, "Mm, mm, 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 Mm-mm-mm, they're starting to get really upset. And Paul and Barnabas are seeing this. So what are they going to do? How are they going to answer? They see the Pharisees and the rulers of the synagogue getting angry. They heap abuse on them. They contradict them. They start arguing. The same people who were saying yes and amen last week are saying, that's enough. Get out of here. Let's look at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas then answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, again, Paul is getting really explicit again. This gospel is for outsiders. 
This gospel is not just for Gentiles, it's for nations. People that even look different than you. It's from the nations. We see here that God's intention all along was to bring the gospel to the outsiders. He was to bring the gospel to the nations. We see this if you wanna go and look at the call of Abraham, that Abraham will be blessed in order to bless the nations. We see it all the way in Revelation when we see the nations and the tribes and tongues gathered around the throne of Jesus. God's heart is for the outsiders. God's heart is for the nations. And it's been that way from the beginning. We see that Paul and Barnabas respond in boldness. They say these things in boldness. We also see, I'm gonna continue in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So you see, this is good news to the outsiders, right? They're like, hallelujah, I don't have to follow the law. I can worship God just as they, as they do. But the, and the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Verse 50, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with fear. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. They were filled with joy. That's right, that's right. Joy and with the Holy Spirit. So we see here that Paul and Barnabas answer this intense persecution with boldness and with joy. Boldness and joy. Let's even look, because I think it's even more interesting at the end. At the end of this first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, as we've read, they were even stoned to death and Paul somehow gets up and keeps going. In, oh, I turned the page. 51, chapter 13, verse 51 and 52. Oh, I just finished that, sorry. So then they went to, after they got, they went to Derby and they're going back to Antioch. They decided to return, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Do you remember those places that were persecuting them? They went back in order to strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. Then Paul says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So those places that persecuted them and even left Paul for dead, they went back to. Do you realize that? This sounds like people that are pretty bold and courageous. They weren't done. Their focus was not on the persecution and the suffering and the hardships. Their focus was on the work of the Lord. They were bold and joyful. We can even see when they give their report to the church at Antioch, when they get back to their home church, Antioch, there's two Antiochs if you're getting confused, it is confusing. Um, when they, on arriving there, verse 27, on arriving there to their home church, they gathered the church together and reported all that he had done, that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Did you hear them mention the persecution or the suffering or like, hey, Paul, Paul was almost dead and then he was rose again. I don't hear that. That's what I would have said, right? I'd have been like, you will not believe what we suffered and God is good, you know? They don't, their focus, they didn't even mention it. Their focus is on the joy of the Lord and the church being planted. Their focus is not on the self, on the hardships, on the people who are around them persecuting them. Their joy is that the church is being planted. Their focus is not on themselves. Paul and Barnabas value Jesus more than the status quo. They face persecution because they're preaching a gospel, that gospel of bringing outsiders in. They are getting persecuted fiercely and they respond in what? Boldness and fear, right? Oh no, Boldness and joy. Boldness and joy. So my question here is, do we value Jesus? Do I value Jesus like that? Do I treasure him? 
Am I willing to share a gospel that goes against the status quo? Do I want to believe it privately but not share it? (laughs) That might rub some people the wrong way. And even if I'm persecuted, do I have boldness and joy? Is that my focus? These are real challenging words from Paul. I mean, 2,000 years ago, right? I know Paul and Barnabas would say, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. He is worthy. He is worth more than a status quo. He is worth more than my comfort. And they respond in boldness and joy. So now, I work in the East Africa. And because I'm in a sensitive location, um, and there are real persecution happening, we have to be sensitive about what we even share online. Um, My visa could be in jeopardy. Our team's status could be in jeopardy because we're there as English teachers. Um, We also have some exciting things happening on the island. And because you're here in person, you get to hear this, and I'll get to show you some pictures. I have a slide of um, a story. I'm going to tell you a story about Nick. Nick was a devout Muslim in our area, and he came from a devout Muslim family. By his own words, he wasn't questioning his faith. He was very happy as a practicing Muslim. He had a wife. He had a healthy career. He was an English teacher himself. But in 2019, a short-term mission trip came. Has anybody here been on a short-term mission trip abroad? I know, you guys went to some of my friends. Um, as, a, as an English teacher himself, Nick was able to converse with the short-term team. That's not always the case, but in Nick's case, he was able to chat with the short-term team. This short-termer, he talked with Nick about his faith and about God and what did he think? Had he ever read the Bible? What did you think about Jesus? And Nick later tells us like he was just being polite. He was just answering his questions. He really wasn't seeking or searching. But he said one thing struck him and he couldn't shake it. This individual wasn't trying to openly like convert him or convince him or manipulate him. He just invited, he was just asking him questions. And he invited Nick to, hey, if you have more questions or you want to learn about this, you should read the Bible for yourself. Here's one. If you have questions, you should contact, you know, so-and-so that's here. That is what struck Nick because that's not what a Muslim would do. So something planted in him. Months later, he still couldn't shake it, and he comes to our team leader. He asks him, I've got questions about who Jesus is. I've got questions about the authority of the Bible. I want to know about the Jewish people and how that fits in, because that's what we've heard, is that those are the people that Jesus is for. And our team leader, he just listens to his questions politely and invites him again. Just read the scriptures. If you read the scriptures, you should just read for yourself. And Nick was said he was getting frustrated. He just wanted somebody to answer his questions. But as he, he began to read the Bible, and he got to the gospel of John, and when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one shall come to the Father except through me. Nick said it was like a light went off. He knew this was the truth. This is what he'd been searching for. This was all of his questions that were periphery. This was the question. He made a decision to follow Jesus. And he knew, because we had been coaching him, that this persecution will probably come. He was new in his faith, but he knew he wanted to tell his family. So he was kind of alluding to his family. He'd been studying the Bible. He was telling them about what he'd been reading. He was telling a lot of people at his school and his friends, but he comes home one day. He's shared a home with his family and he comes up and his oldest brothers are waiting outside for him. They said, we've heard you've become a Christian, but we know that's not true. Tell us it's not true. He couldn't say it wasn't true, so he was just quiet. They began to berate him, argue with him, start beating him. All of this while the neighborhood is around. His Muslim neighbors. His mom is there. They take his phone, 
his key. They have all of his belongings are in the house. They take everything he has on him. They even take his shoes. He loses his family, his place of living. His wife is taken from him. His home, his job, his savings, his future, his inheritance, all gone because he could not deny Jesus. He said later that they were asking him to to lie, to deny something that was false. He couldn't say a lie. For a Muslim, water baptism is like a point of no return. It's a definitive decision, basically, of turning your back on the Quran and Muhammad, and it's turning away that you can't go back. It was after all of that loss, it's no small matter, that that is when Nick decided to be water baptized. He said, I've lost everything for the sake of Christ, but I've gained everything through him. Since that time, Nick has been kidnapped, beaten, threatened countless times. Just a few weeks ago, he was taken by his family. We didn't hear from him. God has pulled through so many times and protected him and brought him out of harm's way in like crazy miraculous ways, like that Paul being stoned and then raises and walks away, those kinds of ways. But despite this ongoing persecution, Nick hasn't stopped sharing. There's a picture here. The guy in the middle is Jason. But Hank, Hank was a fellow teacher at Nick's English school. And he's also the son of an imam. Later, Nick connected with Andrew, a soft-spoken, shy student at his school. But he was having recurring dreams about a man in white. Hudson was another one of Nick's students. He was outgoing and smart, the life of the party but he was the family's next in line to run their family business. He was inseparable from his cousin, Kent, who was a professional soccer player. All four of these made a decision to follow Jesus, and all four have lost everything for the sake of Jesus. Despite this ongoing persecution from each of their families, They are constantly being threatened. They are always having to be um, careful about where they go. They do not live in fear. They live with boldness and joy. And it's inspiring to be around. These five brothers now live together. They share all things in common. They share the little money they have from the few jobs they can pick up uh, amidst each other. They study the scriptures together. They pray together together. They worship together, and they even go out sharing together. We call these guys our bobs, band of brothers. We call them our bobs. And the Lord is doing something amazing on this little island in East Africa. He's planting a church. These are, this is like history is being made. There have been believers on our island, but no one stayed. No, they've either left the island because it's too hard or they don't share. They're a quiet closet believer. Something is happening and miracles are happening. If I had all the time in the world tonight, I couldn't tell of all the things that's just happened in the last two and a half years. So many stories. You'll have to come to the GO meeting. Like Paul and Barnabas, Nick stood up against the status quo. He was from a revered family but then he became a traitor. He came as an honored teacher. In their culture, they're honored. And he became known as an apostate. Anyone who is a Muslim, not just their families, but anyone who is a Muslim could be out for them to harm them, hurt them, or even kill them to get blessings from God in in their mind. That is the life they are living because they value Jesus And they know the gospel is about outsiders coming in, outsiders like them. 
They get to come into the family of God now. And they all have stood firm in the midst of that persecution. And as I mentioned, they have boldness and joy. Nick continues to share the gospel with others that God is welcoming those outsiders in. I'm gonna invite the worship team forward. We have the privilege of working with the persecuted church. We often feel like this is the book of Acts. Oh my gosh. This is happening right now on our little island. We believe and pray that our vision of planting an indigenous church on this island is happening right now. And so I have another slide of our contact information. We need people to pray. Um, This stuff is not because of me and Jason or even Nick. Like God is doing something and we need people to pray. So if you could pray for us, connect with us, get on our newsletter list. We're looking for people to pray for these bobs. And we're praying for bosses, band of sisters, okay? We are praying for families and women to come to know the Lord and to join this house movement. And they are praying for these things as well. We're, We're fundraising as well, and we're also available to speak. If you have a small group or a church or somewhere you think we that we could speak at, we would love to share. And the last thing, I have one more slide. The need is great. Over 40% of the population of the world is without access to this gospel. That means that somebody, 40% of the world, they don't know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody that can tell them this gospel. How are they going to find out? In Africa, our context, there's 867 unreached people groups, UPGs. Do you know how many live dead teams there are? 867 unreached people groups. How many live dead teams are there working? Seven. Okay. The greatest need in world missions right now are workers. We are praying for laborers to go into the harvest field. It's not about the, the Africa. It's not about Muslim people. It's about the world. And we believe and pray that Chi Alpha, you guys, You guys are part of this partnership. Whether you go, pray, give, welcome, it doesn't matter. So I'm gonna end with this, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. You notice it cost him everything. But was he upset about it? No, in his joy, he went. So Lord, I pray. Jesus, we pray that you would be like our treasure. Lord, we would value you like Paul and Barnabas did, that Nick did, Lord, that we would see you for who you are and your true value. And Lord, we pray that this gospel, Lord, we would be compelled to share, Lord Jesus even amidst persecution, Lord, and give us boldness and give us joy. And Lord, for those, Lord, I pray that may feel like they haven't made a decision yet for Jesus, or maybe they feel like they're on the outside for some reason. Lord, would you come to them? Help them know, Lord Jesus, that you are for them, you are with them. Lord, that you're the God who welcomes outsiders in. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make yourself true to us and help us to follow you as best we can. We love you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes again afresh to the value of Jesus. Who is truly worthy of it all? Who is the treasure in the field? Who is the pearl of great price? of Nick's and Hank's and Andrew's. And whatever you would ask of us, Lord, I pray that as we go through this holy week, we would have the value of the gospel 
the glory of Jesus, the wonder of God's grace come alive in our hearts. And that we would respond like our brothers in East Africa, like Paul and Barnabas, like Kelly and Jason, and say you're worthy of whatever it means to follow you. So Lord, I pray as we go through this week, it would be a a week of, as Patrick even said, of surrender, giving you control, and seeing your value. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow, I feel like we got a four-course meal. What do you guys think? Can you say thank Kelly and Jason? Woody, folks, that's your heritage if you lived in Woody. Sigma cool guys, that's your heritage. Salt Shack, that's your heritage, right? Anyways, we're so so blessed by God's word tonight. And as we walk through Holy Week, I hope it's a really special week. We'll see you at Dive Deep. We're going to have some really sweet commemorations of the cross. And we're going to celebrate resurrection life and baptisms. It's going to be a sweet time. And then we're going to celebrate Easter and the victory of Jesus, right? And so it's going to be a sweet week. So Let me give you the benediction tonight. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace as you treasure him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.